Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. Serena, what are we talking about this week? This week, I read a headline that announced that the plans to build onto Tempelhofer Fed would not be going forward. If you're not in Berlin, Tempelhofer Fed is an old airport that has been abandoned and has become a wonderful, beautiful park. It is in the south of the city, between Neukölln and Schönebeck, southish in the city. And in 2014, there have already been plans to build on it that was struck down by a grassroots campaign by local residents. It was repurposed during the 2015 refugee crisis to house refugees. And now there have been plans again to build living space there. I think the headlines were a bit misleading because the way that it was phrased made it sound like they were planning on building all over the park. But in reality, actually, they just want to build housing around the edges of the park. And if you know anything about Berlin, you know that Berlin has a massive affordable housing crisis. So yeah, this week I've just been thinking about buildings, houses, green spaces versus affordable living and how do we prioritize? What do we prioritize? And specifically when it comes to cities, how are cities built and who are they built for? And what do we prioritize when it comes to urban planning? Yeah, it was really interesting because you messaged me and said, oh, they decided not to build on Tempelhofer Feld from the headline. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. And you said, no, why is it good? Because we need affordable housing. And I think that's really the struggle, isn't it? Because I grew up in the city and I love Tempelhofer Field. It's this massive open space. And in a city, you very rarely get that experience of space. And yeah, when you grow up in the city, you realize that as a child, all of these open spaces are so, so important because, yeah, we can make houses, but what is the quality of life for the city? As I was looking into this, I found a recent study from 2020, so last year, that said that growing up in a greener urban environment boosts children's intelligence and lowers levels of difficult behavior. And actually what's really interesting about this study in particular is that they also did a balance between, you know, children from rich families and poor families, because we always make the assumption then that obviously if you're from richer areas, which is true in terms of urban planning, you have more trees on your street and things like that which is kind of true, but they also took into account the class of the family, education levels, all of this. And yeah, an analysis of over 600 children aged 10 to 15 showed a 3% increase in the greenness of their neighbourhood raised their IQ score by an average of 2.6 points. And the effect was seen in both richer and poorer areas. And also, there are just like many different studies that show that green spaces improve various aspects of children's cognitive development. A study of children living in Barcelona, published in 2015, showed that more green space was associated with better working memory and attention. So yeah, how do we kind of build cities that are good for everyone who lives there? You know what's interesting about Marseille? They don't have any parks. There's no green space in Marseille. They have the beach. They're right at the ocean. But it's not green. It's not green. They have nature, but they don't have any parks. My friend who moved there recently told me this. She has a dog, and she was like, there are no parks in Marseille. There's, like, playgrounds and stuff. 
but you can't take the dog into the playground. There's no parks. I fundamentally agree with you. I do think that like parks and green spaces are super important. And I completely see their value. And I do think that Tettenhofer is really cool. It is totally something worth preserving. And I think it's kind of unique in that way. Like I couldn't, I mean, maybe there's a different city on earth that has something similar to it. And not just like a big open green space, but something of that nature. But Berlin has a massive affordable housing crisis. So part of the argument that the local residents in the street have made in 2014 when they were campaigning against them building onto Tempelhofer was based essentially that, yes, we do need affordable housing, but this isn't the solution. We need to build, a, we need to make the housing we have affordable and we need to tackle that problem there instead of building new houses, which also in theory, I completely agree with. There are apartments in Berlin. They're just unaffordable. Rent prices are going up. But at the same time, I always wonder, there's so much homelessness in Berlin and there's so many people living with severe housing insecurity. It, it kind of becomes, again, this issue of like, in order to push through something to like lower rent prices, or we saw it with the meat deck, right? All of these initiatives, they're going to take a really long time to put through. So if we have this vast open space, and I think it should be emphasized that the recent proposal was not to build on all of Tempelhofer as it was reported in the media, just on the edges. Then shouldn't we use the chance to provide people with basic housing as soon as we can? Because it's going to take ages to push something through the government to make affordable housing thing. But I think you're overestimating the competence of everything. That I think your theory is good if everything was working fine. However... That's true. Have you seen the Berlin airport? Yeah, our actual airport. It took, I don't know how many, 10 years over, went billions over. And also the other thing is the government itself is not building these houses. So then you have private contractors, you have people doing stuff for profit, and then they're doing things for profit. What they're trying to do is fit as many people as possible into as little space as possible. And this area in Neukölln is not like Lichterfelder West where it's super nice and bourgeois and then they decide to use these nice green spaces in this area to like put in more volume. They're going to use already a place which is not full of affluent people and like pack people in. Probably it's going to be incompetently done. Probably the housing is not going to be very good because they're going to save as much money as possible to actually make it worthwhile for private contractors to come in. I actually didn't think about it like that. That's like a, hundred, a really, really good point because I think maybe I was, you're right, I was thinking about it way oversimplified. In my mind, I was like, housing, build houses, help people with housing insecurity and homelessness. But you're right. Yeah, they're not proposing to build these apartments in Grunwald. No, yeah, Wilmersdorf, Charlottenburg, where the nice, you know, Litzense yeah. is. Why don't they put it around Litzense? Yeah, but maybe, do you think maybe also part of that issue just is that, like, you have ridiculous amounts of space in Tempelhof? But, no, I see your point. You're, that's a very valid point. I did not think of that. This question has been around for as long as basically cities have been around. Back in the 1890s in England, parliamentary stenographer called Ebenezer Howard. Good name. It's a very good name, right? I love the name Ebenezer. Why Ebenezer. did that go out of fashion? Bring back Ebenezer. Yes, if you're pregnant right now and about to have a child, consider calling them Ebenezer. So Ebenezer's plan for these sort of garden cities were planned on this concentric model. So in his words, he wrote in 1898, human society and the beauty of nature are meant to be enjoyed together. Town and country must be married and out of this joyous union will spring a new hope, a new life, a new civilization. 
which sounds really nice. And in England, actually, Letchworth and Wellen were the first garden city planned in the 1910s and 1920s, based on his concentric model. And they are actually beautiful cities. They have struggled to keep themselves affordable, like affordable housing, even though originally they were planned to be inclusive. Just because they're so kind of pretty and they've got nice houses, it just makes them more desirable. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to somebody recently who moved to Berlin from New York, and they want to have children and they made a list of different cities they would like to move to during the whole of corona because they couldn't go check the cities out so they like did it in this really strategic way and i was like how the hell did berlin move because berlin on your list of all possible cities in the world to move to is for me it's weird like i love berlin but you know and she said well there seems to be a lot of space and green spaces and we wanted a city that was livable which I think the city is super livable. They were considering having children, and we have a lot of places that children can actually like play, but you've still got all the amenities of a city. And the other thing she said, moving here from New York, was that you've got this sort of model where everyone who works in all the service jobs, you know, the baristas, the waiters, everyone who just does normal jobs, cleaners, they can't afford to live in New York. So then they're commuting into the city from outside to kind of work there. And she said Berlin seems a lot more like diverse and integrated because everyone lives in the center of this. Not everyone, but so then you've got a lot of different people from, you know, different backgrounds um, and different social strata just like living in the city, which is a bit better, which obviously I was like, oh, but, you know, this is one of the problems because we're just way behind New York is the thing or London, I guess, in terms of capitalism in Germany and in Berlin, because Berlin is a new capital. So for a long time, it was just... It was an undesired city too. So that's what made it really cool, all the artists living here, all the different groups of people living here. And everyone knows once the artists are there, it's a bit like once the gays are there, you know, it becomes super cool. And then all of the corporates start moving in and that's exactly actually what's happening to Berlin now. And even like she's moved from New York, like totally it's also gentrifying, right? But back to the garden city idea, somebody commented on this article about new houses being built in Kent in The Guardian. Her name is Katie Locke from the Town and Country Planning Association. And she said in order to build cities and towns that, you know, are more collective, that have long-term stewardships and like benefit the community basically, require strong political leadership because development in this country, she's talking about the UK, is led by short-term local politics and dominated by volume of house builders, whereas garden cities don't begin to pay back until 20 or 30 years later. So, yeah, we can address the short-term need for housing, I guess, but, like, what is the long-term idea of our city? Hmm. No, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, right? You can't... I was talking to my mother about the rent cap, and that was exactly the same sort of argument that she was making. She was saying, yeah, that solves the problem in the here and now, but in the long term, actually, it causes people to not develop more housing. It further causes more of a housing shortage, actually, in the long run. So something like the rent cap is a short-term solution that in the long run will not have the desired effects. And I guess that's the same thing with Temple of Affairs. But also the rent cap could, in theory, work, but it was a ridiculous rent cap. And a lot of people had to sell their, you know, first flats that they had bought still on mortgage when they moved on. You know, they were not, they were just normal landlords. It wasn't these big landlords. It was just silly, the whole thing. Everything got 
put to this level regardless of all the different nuances of the thing it's just like this blanket sort of cap it could have worked but it was like a top-down short-term solution that didn't take into account a lot of stuff i remember the linke had come up with this proposal a while ago and i don't mean to sound like i'm anti like the left or the linke just really quickly prefacing this by saying that where if you owned property that was like worth more than, I think it was like a million, they wanted to tax you for it. And it was like, it came from the same place of like, yes, that's a great idea. We should definitely be taxing all of the billionaires and the millionaires who have more money than they have sense. But it was so shallow in its proposal because it didn't take into consideration that if you live somewhere in the north of Germany where your property isn't worth much money, the chances are you could be a very wealthy person with a massive house. Whereas if you live in the south of Germany where the price of property is very high, chances could be that you'd own a, just have owned a property for a while and you're not a particularly wealthy person, but your land is worth more than a million. It doesn't take into account, especially in Germany, around the suburbs of Munich where these families have lived for hundreds of years in these old houses. Well, not necessarily rich, they just have those houses. People who have these farms or these farmhouses who are not necessarily rich or you know been working on this land or living in this land for ages and they're not even making any income. But then if they start paying tax on the property that they own, which happens to have accumulated value, then you're going to basically bankrupt them and put them out of their homes. I was reading recently this book called The Feminist City by Leslie Kern, and she basically is looking at how urban planning is highly fixated on, well, I mean... Her entire thing is is that cities are planned for able-bodied men. So she looks at various different factors at how like city, how cities are set up to be incredibly racist, how cities are set up to be anti-mother. Very few stations in Berlin are accessible. And this is true, not just for Berlin, but I mean, she's from Toronto and she also lives in London for a short time. She looks at all these cities. It's very like US, UK, Europe focused. But she looks at how essentially nothing about the way that our cities are planned is actually planned with anyone else in mind. So even the way that the streets are set up are set up in such a way that it's easiest for men to go to work. So this idea that men go work in the city, that you live outside and you commute in. What are the routes that public transport take? You know, are they easy for women who have children to get from their homes to the kindergarten, to the grocery store? to the office back home, because oftentimes even if women are working, care of the child mostly falls to the women. And oftentimes in urban areas, people don't have cars. So it's like women's responsibilities to take the kids to the different places and they go grocery shopping and then go to work. Also just things like where are street lamps? They're placed in areas that are convenient for men, not taking women into consideration and how like certain areas are scary for women. I mean, it's just a fascinating book. She like also talks about the how like suburbs were founded in the U.S. and in Canada to essentially cause racial divides and in order to create white communities. So the founding of suburbs is deeply rooted in racism. And her like main hypothesis is that just like if we have more feminist cities, taking more people's needs into consideration, we would have better living quality. She has an entire chapter where she talks about like in urban cities, who is allowed to exist in public and who's allowed to take up space in public. She wrote this around the time that Corona was happening. And she's talking about how she observes this thing in Toronto, where capitalism is always at the forefront of every urban conversation. So 
they build these like bubbles for people to eat outside on the streets and saying like they're taking up space on the sidewalk and they're blocking, you know, like walking paths and stuff. And not even like a hundred meters from that, the Toronto police destroyed a homeless camp. And so it's this idea of like one tent is allowed and one tent isn't allowed. So it's like, we're going to destroy, you know, homeless people's tents, but we're going to make space for capitalism to take up even more public space. And that's almost why like Tempelhof is so important, because everyone goes there. If your kids on skateboards, if you're flying kites, you've got these massive families taking up like this much space for picnics. And during Corona, these open spaces where you could spread out, but yet still occupy space was so important and Templehof was super important to that. Also in Templehof they've got like urban gardening and you know it's just so inclusive of a space where you can be, you can take up space and you can have your own sphere and make it your own in your own way. And there were even like outdoor kind of raves and dance parties where people social distance dancing and stuff. So on one hand you had like Turkish families getting together to have their like Sunday big barbecues and on the other hand you had all these sort of techno ravers and then on the other hand you have all these skater people and all these kites and like I think it's so nice because so many identities are allowed to exist and it's like a white space it's an open canvas. That's the nice thing about parks right they are one of the few public spaces where you're allowed to exist for free and nothing is demanded of you. There's another really interesting book about feminism and cities. It's called A Women's Berlin, Building the Modern City. I only read the introduction, but fascinating. So apparently, at the turn of the century, so before the First World War, a lot of women architects were actually involved in building a lot of Berlin's buildings for a number of reasons. First of all, a new load of sort of women, and I have to say bourgeois women, were coming into the city. So, for example, female teachers. And at that time, outrageously, in Wilhelm, Germany, female teachers were actually not allowed to marry. They were based on somehow the nun model, even though male teachers at that time were totally allowed to marry and have children. But female teachers were not allowed. So they were single women who were occupying the space of the city, and they had to make the city sort of fit to these new groups of women who were in the city, not the female teachers, but I guess architects and women. So a lot of architects and women in, like, I think the first architect's office, woman-only architect's office that was opened in the whole of Germany was actually opened in Berlin Mm. at that time, yeah. These architects, because they were admitted at that time also just into architect school in certain, like, fields, and architecture was one of them. And then they got a lot of funding from, like, old rich widows to make spaces. So, for example, with the female teachers, what they did, because female teachers were annoyed at always, like, having to have boarding rooms or little rented rooms and stuff. So then they built a whole building where they could, like, all teachers, also across different groups, so, like, Jewish female teachers or Christian women teachers or whatever, they got a building where they could all sort of live together because they were not allowed to marry. And women architects designed these big buildings. And in this book, there's an amazing photograph. Let me show it to you. Oh, wow. She looks really cool. There is a woman making repairs to the roof of the Rathaus in 1910. She's sitting right, right on top of the roof. And you can see this urban landscape of Berlin stretch out around her. We'll post it on our newsletter. And we never think of women architects because what she says in this book is they've been erased 
from the history of architecture because nobody thinks skyscrapers and big projects, women do those. There've been all of these women's buildings, also in Chicago, in New York, because this also happened at the same time, where there were a few factors. One was that cities were actually expanding at this time, so they didn't need new buildings. And second was, you know, women architects came in. And the third one was there was this need to build spaces for women within this urban structure. And they knew that they needed to carve out their own spaces. And so a lot was going on at this time. But we never think about women doing these big architectural projects. We think, oh, men have built all the skyscrapers in the world. Actually, it's not true. And especially in Berlin, we we do say, well, Berlin was really rebuilt by women. It was just in rubble. And we think about the women kind of saving it and salvaging it and, and on their hands and knees, you know. Trümmerfrauen. Is, is literally rubble women. And of course, the city was rebuilt by women, but that's also also just a sexist kind of view of, oh yeah, they were just repairing it after the damage. But they were also instrumental in building a lot of buildings in Berlin. And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, as various studies have shown, getting out into green spaces, walking, enjoying nature really improves your mental health, your focus, your attention, the intelligence of your children. So go out and enjoy any green spaces you can. Thing two, Berlin has a lot of really cute community gardens. So if you get a chance to participate in one, support them, and just be mindful of them. Don't go around stealing flowers from them, please. That's not what they're for. And thing three, when we have referendums and our proposed solutions by politicians to deal with certain problems like affordable housing, maybe think about them in a wider context because there is a lot of nuance to these arguments and try and be informed and as open-minded and have as wide a perspective as possible on them. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.